Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I just wanted to uh, explain a little bit about what we are and what we do. CARTA is the Center for Advanced Research and Training in Anthropogeny. And anthropogeny is a term used for the investigation into the origin of humans. And the person organizing the symposium today, Dr. James Moore, will be um, just talking very briefly about the origin of humans and some very exciting new um, discoveries today that have just been released today. CARTA has a particular mission, and I just wanted to tell you our mission statement. That is that we use all rational and ethical approaches to seek all verifiable facts from all relevant disciplines, and I think uh, you can see I'm from anthropology, Ajit is from the School of Medicine, uh, Rusty Gage is from SOC. Uh, We are from all across the map. We are from all relevant disciplines to explore and explain the origins of the human phenomenon. Anthropologists tend to think of culture as one of the hallmarks of human life, and most cultural anthropologists would argue that culture is a uniquely human attribute. Now, whether or not we agree with that statement depends on how we define culture, of course. And if you use a quite simple definition, such as culture equals between-group variation in behavior that is attributable at least in part to social learning processes, then the answer is no, it's clearly not uniquely human. We see traditions in all kinds of taxa, even perhaps insects. But if you start embellishing that definition and you add features such as Don Brown talked about, uh, like a complex symbolic uh, content or co- uh, complex cumulative culture or a linkage between specific cultural traits and uh, group identity, then it may be the case that humans are unique. But regardless of your definition of culture, what evolutionary anthropologists are trying to do is illuminate the the roots of culture, evolutionary roots, and in that case it's necessary to take a much broader taxonomic sweep and see what kinds of traditions are present in non-humans. So in this talk I'll define a tradition as a behavior pattern that's shared by its practitioners due to some form of social learning, and social learning as individual use of public information to organize behavior. The comparative method is our main methodological tool for figuring out the phylogenetic history of traits and the types of selection pressures that promote the evolution of culture or whatever other trait we're interested in. So you can easier use the comparative method to talk about homologies or analogies. So when we want to figure out what our ancestors are like, we look at what traits are present in humans and the most closely related animals, the great apes, and assume that those traits shared were probably ancestral. But this cannot tell us why we have these traits. To answer the why questions, we have to think in terms of analogies. And so what we do is we look for many other species throughout the animal kingdom that share the traits we're interested in and compare them with other species out there that don't have those traits. Try to come up with what are the the common adaptive problems faced by the animals with the traits that we're interested in. So what might some of those factors be? Many biologists would argue that large brain size and, in particular, 
imitative capacities are important. Now, not everyone would agree with that, and for example, Galef would, would probably not. Everyone pretty much agrees that gregariousness and social tolerance are important because obviously the more models you have, the more opportunities you have to, to learn new innovations. And social tolerance is important because if you don't have a good relationship with this individual you're trying to learn from, you can't really focus on the task. Now, depending on what else you're interested in, there may be other factors. For example, for dietary traditions, you might expect those to be more common in omnivores because they have such dietary flexibility, unlike, for example, pandas that focus mainly on one food type. So there's more room for social cues to be important. For two-youth traditions, it's arguably the extractive foragers that will have the most need to develop tools, and they have very complex tasks they need to learn. So uh, arguably, social cues could be helpful in that. And I'm going to talk mainly today about social conventions. So I will be arguing that very, animals with very complex social relationships, and particularly those that rely to a great extent on coalitions and other forms of uh, cooperation, not just aggressive, may have a greater need to communicate about their social relationships and test their bonds. So they may need traditions to do that. Now, capuchins meet all of these conditions. For those of you who are not familiar with capuchins, these animals live in multi-female, multi-male groups of up to 39 individuals. They're highly social, highly gregarious, they're very tolerant of close-range observation when they're foraging, and that's fairly unusual. They're extractive foragers, so most of their foods are uh, plants that require a lot of processing and also insects that must be extracted from woody matrices. And perhaps most important for this talk, they form coalitions all day long for all kinds of reasons, some trivial and some quite important. And the most important context in which they form coalitions is when males are migrating or trying to take over a group, we frequently see coalitionary lethal aggression. So animals like this unfortunate male who's just disemboweled by a male-male coalition, they, um, they absolutely need allies that they can count on when they're migrating, when they're defending a group, trying to take over a group, defend their offspring from infanticidal intruders. So um, most of the traditions research that is done with primates focuses on technology, on foraging strategies. And so what I want to do today is focus more on the social conventions, which I think are really the, the most important aspect of human culture. If you talk to someone, a layperson, and ask them what they mean by culture shock, they're not going to talk so much about their technology. Likewise, if you talk to a cultural anthropologist and ask what's the difference between two cultures, they'll start out by talking about the social norms, the customs, the rules that govern the proper mode of social interaction. Most of what I'll talk to, the data I'll talk about today come from Lomas Barbudal, my study site in Costa Rica, which is uh, just finishing its 19th continuous year. And I will also be talking about data collected at other sites because part of my talk today will be comparing uh, communicative rituals at different sites. So Santa Rosa, Lomas Barbudal, Palo Verde and Curu, which are all in Guanacaste, Costa Rica. This is all tropical dry forest. As recently as about 60 years ago, these forests were all connected by corridors. So genetically, they're not that different probably. And ecologically, they're extremely similar as well. So this traditions project, most, and most of the work I'll talk about today is in a current anthropology article. Most of this comes from about 40,000 hours of observation 
uh, from several groups, uh, five groups at Lomas Barbadal from the past 19 years, Santa Rosa, seven groups, 1986 plus a decade in the 90s, Palo Verde, one group, one year, and Kourou, one group for multiple years. And these are all my collaborators. So how did we operationalize a social convention? It's a little bit tricky to do. Maybe not as quite as easy as a, as a tool use trait to, to identify. So we decided that we would call it a tradition or a social convention if the behavior was clearly present, that is seen at a rate of at least once per 100 hours in some groups, and clearly absent in others that had been followed for several hundred hours. The behavior also had to exhibit expansion in the number of performers over time, and the behavior had to be durable. Now, this criterion is very arbitrary, I think not as important as, as the others. Here's an example of a social convention. This is hand sniffing. Notice how she has her friend's finger in her nostril. She's sticking it up there. Remember, they have long nails, claw-like nails, usually pretty dirty. They've just been in a kawadi carcass or something. And uh, this can't be very comfortable. You'll notice she's going to grimace a little bit there. As it wiggles around in the nose, it's, it's, it's a little bit delicate. And they love doing this. So sometimes they'll sneeze, and it'll blow out, and they'll stick it right back in. They'll, they'll do this for you know, at least 10 minutes, usually, and sometimes up to half an hour. And this is really striking for those of you who see capuchins in their daily lives. They're usually running around like maniacs, just hyperactive, can't sit still. And so this really stands out as something weird and very important to them, this, this deviant, deviance from their normal routine. So now I'm going to show you a table summarizing the results from all the different conventions we pulled out of this cross-site study. So these are the different traditions we identified. These are the study sites separated by bold-faced lines and the different study groups within each study site. So, for example, hand-sniffing, which I just described. Okay, the C's mean common. It is a tradition at a site. An R means it's very rarely seen, just a couple of times hasn't been, um, it hasn't become a, a tradition at all. No one's picked up on it. The X's mean that we've studied this group for at least 300 hours, more often several thousand hours, and it hasn't ever been seen. And the question marks mean that it's never been seen, but perhaps we just didn't study it quite long enough. So you'll notice with hand sniffing, each of the groups, so the sites where we have multiple uh, groups, it was seen in some groups and not others. So it seems to have been invented multiple times. I should also say that the temporal patterning of these, this tradition and all these others is quite striking. So, for example, hand-sniffing in Abby's group was all the rage for female-female dyads between 1991, when it first appeared, up through 97. And we've been studying this group intensively ever since and have not seen it since then. Uh, this group, it started as being a very common male-male activity and then vanished for 10 years and then was reinvented by a female who didn't know the original hand sniffers and spread through the group again. So the form may be slightly different in different groups. It could be the up-the-nose variety versus the, the gas mask kind of variety. So there are subtle uh, differences in, in the form of these traditions, but pretty similar. Uh, sucking of body parts, this is uh, where they will take a tail tip, a finger, maybe an ear, and they'll suck on it mutually for about an hour. And again, it stands out as very different from their normal manic behavior. Uh, this looks like it's been invented more times than it has been. It's really three independent inventions because all of these C's and R's are one male-male coalition 
migrating from group to group. These games, I'll explain what they are in a minute, but for now just notice that there are three inventions. Uh, one individual, Guapo, invented all of these games at, at Abby's group. Napoleon invented these two, and this is a third site. So there has been no contact between these monkeys and these monkeys. And then eyeball poking has only been invented once. <laughs> uh, and it was slow to spread. So <laughs> let me explain a little about these games. They all have a very similar format. This is all about turn-taking. So Guapo here on the left, he was the innovator. In this a picture, and I'm sorry I don't have a video of this one because uh, it's funny, he, he will bite down on the finger of his partner, like, like that, and really hard, but just the right level so he doesn't bite off the finger, which they can do, <laughs> and or it doesn't even bleed, but hard enough that it's, it takes several minutes for the other monkey to use the hands and his other hand and his feet and mouth to pry open the m- mouth and get the finger back. And then as soon as he's extricated his finger, he wants to do it again. So <laughs> he'll either put the finger back in or else they'll switch roles more commonly and so he'll bite Guapo's finger. And so they'll go back and forth for maybe a half hour doing this. My favorite game, I think, is the hair biting game where they'll bite a huge tuft of hair out of the face or shoulder all the way out. And you may be able to see in this um, the hair. He's trying to get it back. And it stretches a little. So every time they get some, gets it back, some gets lost. And then he has to get it back from him. And it goes back and forth until they run out of hair. And then they bite more hair out. And uh, so it'll go on for 10 to 30 minutes. And then there's the toy game, which is a little less interesting because it doesn't use part of a monkey. It's just a stick or a stone or some inanimate or inedible object. Now, for all of these games at Lomas, anyway, we were able to construct social transmission chains so we could see the number of links in a chain. So they're all pretty similar. I'll just show you one. Here is Guapo. These lines show the direction of transmission and the year of transmission. Dotted lines just mean that they did play it together, but he learned it from him first before he started playing with him. So you can see here that there are three links in a transmission chain which is pretty typical, and uh, it was invented by Guapo in 92, and it kept going up through 2001, and these four monkeys fissioned off and co-migrated and still played this game after leaving the group. Here's eyeball poking. So uh, she has got her friend's finger, and that long nail is going in the eye socket. You can see the lid being pulled down. In other clips, you can see the finger warming its way into the temple, which I don't think we'd be able to do. And it goes up to the first knuckle. And often, now she's being pretty cool about it, but often they they blink like someone who's putting a contact lens in for the first time. And uh, so this is a little harder to get going. Rumor was the inventor, and... Initially, her partners would poke themselves in the eye and put their other finger in her eye, but they didn't want to have Rumor's finger in their eye until they'd had a lot, several months of practice at this. So either the poker or the pokey can initiate, and this is very risky for an arboreal primate to put someone's claw basically in their eye. As if they move quickly, you could just lose it. So all of these social conventions have some features in common. Risk and discomfort are eminent features of all of these, these conventions. And they're all practiced by dyads that have pretty relaxed social relationships. And they're not in the hubbub center hubbub of the group. They're off on the side a little bit, so they can really focus on what they're doing. And like I've said before, the, this focus is extremely noteworthy for a capuchin monkey.
So everyone wants to know why they do these things. And of course, I can't know for sure, but uh, my best guess is that it has something to do with testing the quality of a social bond. So uh, one of my favorite papers in biology is by Zahavi, not his handicap paper, but the testing of a bond from 1975. So he proposes that animals can use a stress, impose a stressful stimulus, stimulus on, on another individual to see what kind of response that elicits, and that will inform them about the quality of their relationship. And so one of the examples he uses in his original paper is tongue kissing. It has to be a behavior that can be perceived as either intensely pleasurable or just horrifyingly disgusting, <laughs> depending on the nature of the relationship you have with this interaction partner. So the idea then is that the information is not in the stimulus itself, it's in the response you get. And so by what response do you get, you can gauge where you stand with this individual, whether you might be able to count on them in the future, in the near future, for, for help. Randall Collins from sociology, microsociology, also talks a lot about interaction rituals, and he's mainly talking about human conversations. He doesn't really know that other animals do these things, I'm sure. Um, so he argues that in human conversations, you're, you're getting information about the level of commitment to this relationship as compared to other dyadic relationships in the community. By displaying the amount of enthusiasm, engagement, and coordination between partners. So it's not the text of what you say in the conversation. You can be talking about the weather, or you can be uttering sheer nonsense, or telling lies. That doesn't matter as much as all of these nonverbal kinds of aspects of the interaction. So um, another question I'm often asked is, why, uh, why don't we see all this crazy stuff in other animals? And I've, I don't know for sure. I mean, part of it may be that no one specifically goes out and looks for them. I'm an anthropologist, and I'm interested in culture, so I looked hard to find this stuff, and I badgered all of my colleagues at other sites to do the same. Um, another is that it's methodologically difficult to detect. Even if people have no, uh, see weird stuff, they don't necessarily write down things that aren't in their ethogram because it's not relevant to their question. So there could be a lot of similar things out there that just haven't been written up in this way or analyzed in this way. Another possibility is that it really is true that capuchins are pretty special, but the reasons why I think they need these more than other organisms are that they do have an incredibly complicated social life. Coalitions are key to just about every measure of success in a capuchin's life. But they're certainly not the only animals in the animal kingdom like that. So I think bottlenose dolphins, for example, should be doing these things. And I'll be interested to hear what Peter and, and Hal have to say about their cetaceans. And I asked Rich Connor about this a lot. He thinks they might, but he hasn't got back to me with a definitive answer yet. Uh, really quick, oh, well, I guess I won't talk about foraging. I'll do that tomorrow. But they do conform in a seven-year study. They do conform very much not only to their mother's style, but to the uh, techniques, foraging techniques of non-mothers as well. Thank you to my field assistants. Uh, there are a lot more than that. I think about 100 people have come through my site. Uh, my funding agencies and various people who help with the database. And if you want to know more about these amazing animals, that's the layperson's version. Thank you. I'm uh, Hal Whited, and I'm going to talk about... Uh, culture in the open ocean. So first, uh, like everyone else, 
or nearly everyone else, uh, I, I want to talk about, um, just mention what I mean by culture. And uh, this is a very simple definition, but one that I find tractable in the rather difficult realm where I tried to do my work. And the two key aspects of it are that information is being transmitted between the individuals by social learning, and secondly, that it results in shared behavior, so the animals are doing the same thing. If you define culture like this, and then start looking across the animal um, kingdom, you find a very skewed distribution. Most species, we have no, no evidence of culture at all. In a few, like some um, song, songbirds, there's evidence of perhaps one culturally determined behavior. Now, there's a few species, like the capuchins uh, Sue was talking about, where there's much culturally determined behavior. Um, a, a very few species where um, this division is a bit controversial, but uh, um, where culture seems to be a crucial determinant of behavior and success. And that seems to be the case in at least a few whale species, and I suspect also in elephants. And then, of course, we've got one species whose culture has just gone totally berserk. And uh, so as an evolutionary biologist, you think, why this extraordinarily skewed distribution? If culture is useful, why don't they all have it? And if it's not useful, why do any of them have it? Well, here are some possible reasons. First is, actually, everybody has it. We just haven't looked well enough. And I suspect there's some of this, but um, that's not the whole story. Second, cognitive constraints. All the ones at the bottom of that, um, my last slide, are animals we think of as cognitively advanced. Um, so is advanced cognition a prerequisite for culture? Well, people have been able to find social learning in animals which don't seem to be very cognitively advanced. So there's a bit of a, a paradox here. And it's possible that what's really going on is that those advanced uh, cognitive abilities are actually the result of advanced cultures. Second social structure, which um, Sue and others have talked about, life history. Animals are going to learn things from each other. If they live a lot of time with each other, they're more likely to learn important things. Environmental variation. Um, a number of studies, including one I've, I've made and I'll talk about more tomorrow, have shown that culture is a particular advantage in what one might call red noise environments, environments in which there's a lot of variation, but it doesn't happen very fast. So doing what others do is advantageous and a shortcut to achieving the best behavior for a particular environment. In contrast, when it, the environment's varying very fast, then it turns out that copying others doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It makes more sense to figure it out yourself. Okay, so let's go to the whales and dolphins. And, and apply some of these characteristics to them. They live long, um, over 100 years in some species. There's a lot of maternal care, a lot of um, possibilities for transferring information. They live in complex social structures with long-term bonds. They are cognitively advanced. And they, the ocean is a particular red noise environment. There's a lot of variation in the ocean over long time and spatial scales. Um, and much less over smaller ones. So all of these um, would seem to promote social learning and culture, although, as I said, the advanced cognitive abilities might 
might be a result of this rather than a precursor for this. So now I'm going to move on to sperm whales. Um, the analyzed study, this is how I study them. Uh, this is our 40-foot sailing boat off the Galapagos Islands um, trying to study sperm whales. And this is about as much as we normally see. So as you can, um, in fact, we're pretty lucky to see this much. So it's a difficult business, and that limits what I can tell you. Well, what about the sperm whale? It's the largest toothed whale. Um, an important aspect is that all this part of it is the most powerful sonar system in the natural world. The uh, most powerful sound in the natural world is produced by that. It's highly directional. It comes out here. Behind that is the largest brain on Earth. They're found in almost all the deep waters of the, of the world's oceans. And they are one of the most significant predators in these waters. It's estimated that sperm whales, even today after the reductions from whaling, take about as much out of the oceans as we humans do. Um, for the rest of the talk, I'm going to talk about female sperm whales, so just a tiny bit about males. Uh, females are, are, are big animals, 15 tons, but nothing like the males, uh, three times the mass. There's another extreme of the sperm whales is in sexual segregation. The females and young are found in the tropics and subtropics, the males in the Arctic and Antarctic. Um, the females, as I'll talk about, are highly social. The males appear to be much more solitary. Well, the males return to low latitudes to breed when they start coming back when they're about 27. And here they rove singly between groups of females, spending just a little time with each. What I think the consequences of this are, are that the males spread genes around very well. And there's very little difference in the nuclear genes between different oceans. Um, but they don't move information around well because they don't spend very long with any of the permanent groups of females. So here are the females, and a lot of my work has been trying to figure out what's going on here. Why are these animals together? And this is the picture from our work in, in the waters of the central um, eastern Pacific. The basis seems to be the social unit, about 11 females and their young, um, nearly permanent membership, and not many of them are related, but some aren't. However, when we're out there, we tend to meet about 20 animals. Whoops, can I go back one? Sorry. Uh, about 20 animals, which is two units, and they're moving together for a period of about 10 days or so. The females within these units and group, they move and feed together, covering hundreds or thousands of miles. They suckle each other's young, they babysit each other's young. They defend themselves communally from predators such as killer whales. So this is a very communal existence. Um, I'm now going to talk a little bit about their sounds. Um, sperm whales make loud clicks to find their food, but they also use the clicks to communicate. These are what are known as codas, and they're patterns of clicks used for communication. Okay, so we've, um, these, these sounds uh, are actually much easier to analyze um, than parrot or dolphin vocalizations. It's just a series of clicks. And that's allowed us to, to look in some detail uh, how, how they're used. And uh, 
these, um, the whales of the Galapagos, um, we find that each unit has a particular dialect, but the dialects are very similar between bunches of units. So off the Galapagos, there are three what we call clans. The regular clan who go click, 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 click. The plus one, click, 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 click. Rather like the Canadian A at the end. <laughs> and just occasionally off the Galapagos, we find the short clan. Click, click. <laughs> um, in one of the better bits of my research, I sailed all around the South Pacific recording these codas. Um, and um, oh, I'll get to that. The, the repertoires of the units are stable over years. So if one unit's regular now, it's regular 10 years later. And the units form groups only with units from their own clan, even though there are units from different clans in the same area. So yes, this is from our study across the South Pacific. The plus one clan just off Galapagos, Ecuador. This is where we heard them. The regular clan from there and down to central Chile. Four plus clan, click, 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 click. Uh, from central Chile up into the central Pacific. Uh, a different clan in the Caribbean. And then that short clan, the one we occasionally heard in the Galapagos, we actually found right away the way across the South Pacific, all the way to New Zealand. So, four to five clans in the South Pacific, separate clans in the Caribbean, 2,000 to 10,000 kilometers, a huge spatial scale. The clans are sympatric. I mean, they, in any area, there's two or more clans. So you've got a, a system with what you might call multicultural society. In any area, animals are interacting with those who have a different dialect. And the clans contain tens of thousands of females. So this is a, these are large-scale structures. What produced them? Well, we've done the genetics, and there's virtually no difference at all between clans in the uh, nuclear genes. What about environmental differences plus individual learning? So the animals are learning different things in different places. No, they're in the same places. Ontogeny, so maybe the plus one were the young ones, the regular, the old ones. No, in each clan, there's all, all, all ages of whale. But the only thing left is culture. So we assume these clans are the result of culture. Um, but they are actually much more than dialect, these clans. We find that there's um, some mating and movement between clans to st stabilize the genes. As I said, they're sympatric, several clans in any area. They're large-scale, distinct dialects, but there's also distinct habitat use and movement patterns, so they're behaving differently, consistently differently in the different areas. These result into differences in feeding success. So off the Galapagos Island, normally the regular clan um, has better feeding success. But when El Nino strikes, it switches, and the plus one clan does better. There are differences in reproductive success. So over the long term, um, some clans are producing more babies than other clans. So looking at the consequences of this, sperm whale um, uh, populations seem more structured culturally than genetically or geographically. And if clans are differentially adapted 
to different areas and conditions, um, the effects of what we're doing to their environment may be particularly uncertain. So, for instance, when we look at the long-term effects of whaling, because the behavior of the individuals in the different clans is different, it's likely that the rate at which they were being killed by these, at least by these kind of whalers, if not by the modern whalers who are much more efficient, were different. So as we look at the long-term effects of whaling, probably we should try and factor this in. Uh, global climate change. I mentioned that when El Nino strikes, the plus one clan units start doing better feeding-wise. Well, El Nino is a warming of the waters in the eastern tropical Pacific. Uh, global climate change is likely to produce more El Ninos, more El Nino-like conditions. So the, the, the conclusion is that the different clans will probably be differentially affected um, as the waters warm. A, a consequence of this, and from similar studies of, of other um, whale and dolphin species where we seem to have um, cultural diversity is that we should conserve it. We should not only be trying to conserve genetic diversity of these animals, but we should try and conserve the diversity of information in the population, their cultures. Well, now getting to um, the focus of, of this meeting, how, what does whale culture tell us about human culture, or perhaps vice versa? We know very, very little of whale culture. It, they're very hard to study, and I suspect there's a huge amount out there. But what seems to be clear is that whale culture is not generally material or technological. Um, certainly not as material as chimpanzee culture, and way, way below anything we humans have. They appear, as far as we can tell, to lack a syntactical language which is used in the wild. One can seem to be able to teach them syntax in captivity, but there's, so far, as far as I know, no evidence that they use this in the wild. But what it is, it's vocal culture, it's ecological, it's about how they use their environment, it's social, it's about how they interact with each other. So um, going back to this book, um, one of the more provocative chapters is by the anthropologist Kim Hill. And he puts it fair and square, non-humans do not have moral systems and do not reinforce social rules with symbolic display or signal adherence to specific sets of norms. So then I read that and thought, well, do sperm whales have moral systems? And a little after that, I, start, I read a book by Donald Broom, who was uh, suggesting that many animals have moral systems. They have to have moral systems to live socially with each other when they can be dangerous to each other. And uh, for sperm whales, it came to me, this is particularly severe. So these sperm whales are making this extraordinarily powerful sound which will undoubtedly um, temporarily deafen or perhaps permanently deafen each other if they aren't used carefully. 
they use these sonar systems 50% of the time. So 50% of the time they're going click, click, click. And these are very, very powerful clicks. And if any of those clicks was aimed at the hearing system of another sperm whale, it would be very bad news for that whale. So I liken this to a bunch of hunters out there in the woods. They're all using machine guns, and they're firing them over 50% of the time. For that to survive, and for those hunters, like these whales, to perhaps live over 100 years, they have to have a strong moral system, at least... That's my conclusion. <laughs> well, but are these rules genetic or cultural? We don't know. Um, and I think it's very likely that whale culture contains ethnic, mar- ethnic markers of social structures, such as the sperm whale coders. We don't know this for sure. There's rather better evidence that um, the killer whale calls are ethnic markers. And they may perhaps signal adherence to specific sets of norms. So, in summary, although we know very little of whale culture, it seems very likely that these sophisticated cultures existed in the ocean millions of years before humans got culture, and that the social cultures of whales may provide important contrasts or or examples to those of humans, and we should consider whale culture, both as we try to conserve them, as we decide how to treat them, and um, finally... This is just the start. We know very little. So thank you very much. Okay. (laughs) This says it all, really. I hope you like this. Uh, this is a nice sort of introduction to my talk, this, this lovely little cartoon. Uh, so, culture to the child and chimpanzee, well, here we have them both, except uh, the zoologically astute amongst you will realise that the chimpanzee has an awfully long tail, uh, but <coughs> uh, we'll do for our purposes. And what I want to persuade you of is a couple of things. First of all, that there are similarities, quite fundamental similarities, in the cultural capacities of chimpanzees and uh, our own species, children like this. And because we're sister species, that allows us to actually make some inferences about our cultural ancestor, the shared ancestor between ourselves and chimpanzees living several million years ago. So I've got an evolutionary theme, and that also applies to the fact that, of course, the little character on the right, although to begin with, they both here look to be picking up a bit of culture the same. They've seen this is what you do with this kind of thing, and they're, they're trying, to, trying to do it. I haven't got it quite right yet. But the character on the right probably, surely one day, will get it right. They'll get the book the right way up. They'll be able to read it. Maybe they'll even write another book which takes us one step forward and advances culture in a very human way. So... Another evolutionary theme, because there we're talking about the divergence between ourselves and chimpanzees uh, since that common ancestor of a few million years ago. So, mentioning uh, Darwin, uh, as I'm sure you all know, this is the 200th anniversary of uh, Darwin's birth. So, uh, I'm a member of the Scottish Primate Research Group. Here are some of the species we study. I'm just going to insert uh, Darwin in here as an extra non-human primate and go on to (coughs) make the point that... um, 
because it's its 200th anniversary, I think, uh, lots of people have come familiar with this uh, wonderful page from one of Darwin's notebooks where he said, I think evolution happened like this. Now, he was talking about biological evolution here, but the insight that perhaps evolution had this branching tree-like structure. And so if we think of biological evolution now, we often think in terms of a tree, like this one from, from Heichel, just a few years after the publication of The Origin, with the apes up here at the top and humans, of course, at the pinnacle. And the first point I want to make is simply that, although we might think that culture separates us from this kind of biological world, in a very fundamental way, it doesn't. We see Darwinism again because, I'm just taking one particular example of this, culture has many features of Darwinian evolution. It could be tree-like. Here's just one little example. This illustration is actually from Nature a year or two ago, but it was a replication of one that came out, again, just a couple of years after the origin of species, and it shows just one part of human uh, linguistic evolution, the Indo-European languages. English is some, uh, somewhere up here in, in the Germanic group. And that shared an ancestor, as it were, a, a linguistic ancestor, uh, times in the past with other groups such as this Romance language with French and Italian and so on in it. And for those of you who are interested in this kind of analogy perhaps a really interesting analogy between cultural and biological evolution. I'm just going to put up a couple of references from myself and uh, some of my colleagues, Alex Masudi and Kevin Leyland, where we pursued that in some detail. Okay, well, that's one aspect of what we might mean by the evolution of culture, cultural evolution in that branching kind of way. However, before that, we really need to talk about the evolution of the capacity for culture, and that's been the theme, I think, of several talks today on the animal side. So, um, <clears throat> my cartoon again, uh, this little character on the left, well, actually, early in the last century, people did rear chimpanzees, a few chimpanzees, in their own homes alongside children, and they found that chimpanzees would indeed do something like this. They'd see that people uh, did this with books, and they would do it again, flick through it, or they'd see people brushing their teeth, that's what they do. Well, of course, that's quite an artificial kind of situation. It gives us a hint about what these animals are like culturally. But to really discover that, we need to look at them in the wild when the close attention might be something uh, like this, a close attention to termite fishing. But once we've got a cultural capacity there in a species, then that's where that second sense of cultural evolution, this diversification, can take place. Well, today I'm mostly going to talk uh, just <coughs> about this side of the story, the capacity for culture, the evolution of that. And I'm really going to focus on chimpanzees. I should apologise, really, given my child and chimpanzee in the title. I'm mainly going to talk about chimpanzees in the limited time I've got today. I'll talk much more about our experiments and other studies with children tomorrow. But I'm going to come back and talk about humans. Okay, chimpanzees. Well, a few years ago now, I was um, privileged to uh, be the, the lead author in this collaboration between all the leaders of the long-term chimpanzee study sites across Africa. It's an extraordinary thing if you think 50 years ago, we knew next to nothing about our closest living relative on the planet. Now we know a huge amount, and in this study, we tried to put together what was actually 150 years of information across several long-term study sites to get as definitive an idea as we could of the cultural capacities of chimpanzees, because it was still to be realised that chimpanzees behave in different ways across Africa. We took it in two phases, and the first phase was simply to establish a list of potential cultural variants. So we asked all these research leaders, what behaviours are, are really common at your site, and yet you've heard that 
they don't happen elsewhere, or the other way around. You know, they, you've heard these very common behaviours elsewhere. In 20 or 30 years at your site, you've never seen it. And that gave us a list of 65 candidate cultural variants or traditions, itself a kind of tribute to the, the inventiveness of chimpanzees. But crucially then, having defined all those very carefully, that list was given back to each research group, and they were asked to code them into a number of different categories. The first one was customary, that means pretty much done by everybody in, in the community you study, or at least habitual, done repeatedly by several individuals. You've heard echoes of this already in, in Susan Perry's talk. At the other extreme are the absent. And there, of course, it's crucial to try and work out if that's with or without an ecological or, or ready environmental explanation or indeed a genetic explanation. So if we look at a behaviour like this, which is using natural materials like stones and wood to crack nuts, is known in West Africa, but not in East African chimpanzees. Well, if we find there aren't the nuts over there in East Africa, that's not really very interesting, is it? But if those nuts are there, if all the raw materials are there, but they've not discovered it as well, they're not doing it, whereas it seems to have spread across an area of West Africa, as it has in this case, then we've got some circumstantial evidence for a tradition, or what we're calling here a cultural variant. And taking that process, we came up reducing this 65 to 39 that met the criterion of being very common in those first two categories somewhere, and yet absent somewhere else, so far as we could see, without any other explanation. That's what's represented here. Each of these panels represents those 39 possibilities, and they're lit up if they're common uh, at the particular site. So there's the definition of what we mean by the cultural variant, and you can't read this at the back, of course, or even probably at the front very well, so uh, if I blow just one of those up for the time for us, you start to get the idea. The one that are in the lit-up squares are the ones that are customary in the circles, uh, at least habitual. Some of them couldn't happen at certain sites, that's what that means, but the grey ones here, you know, they all could. Indeed, they are common somewhere else, but here they're not happening. Well, I don't have long today, uh, I can't, it would be nice to take you all through all 39, the way Susan Perry did so nicely with some of her capuchin uh, behaviours. I'm just going to tell you about one to illustrate this, and that's the first one in the list there. It's called pestle pounding, and here a chimpanzee goes into the top of a, a palm tree. Oh, sorry, what I didn't say was, this covers a whole range of different kind of behaviours, all that stuff. doesn't include vocalisations, but really uh, very extensive repertoire. Okay, pestle pounding, the chimpanzee goes into the top of a palm tree, takes off from what's one of the big fronds that's left lying there, and then use that, uses that to pound into the centre, the growing point of the palm tree. And that allows it then to take out uh, a deeper sort of soup, very nutritious mush that it's made there. So here's this extraordinary behaviour uh, going on, standing bipedally, really driving into that growing point, a bit like pestle pounding you might see in a local African village. And such a sort of com complex behaviour, and so unusual for chimpanzees, that uh, the researchers at that site would think, well, chimpanzees aren't going to invent that every generation. Surely it's been passed on by social learning. At least that's the inference. And along with that is the fact that, OK, it's common at Bosso, in fact, only at Bosso, and not at some of these other sites. In particular, it's not occurring. Even in the Thai forest, which is just a few hundred kilometres away, same subspecies of chimpanzees, same species of palm trees. As far as one can see, well, it's difficult <coughs> to imagine an environmental or genetic explanation for that. And so the inference is that it's socially learned. And that goes along with other observational evidence like this, where you see this very intense inspection of what an expert uh, in, the, in, the, in the past generation is doing, as in this termite fishing here. So, but that is all based on circumstantial evidence, if I can put it that way. 
And there's always a worry that, well, maybe all that's going on here is that 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 young chimp wants to scrounge some of the termites. And the fact that months or years later it perfects the behaviour, maybe that's due to a lot of trial and error. And even that, think about the palm tree example there, well, maybe there's some subtle difference between the palm trees we haven't detected. You'd really like to do a translocation experiment of the kind that Tim talked about in the parrots. For practical and even ethical reasons, no one's done that yet, maybe no one will with chimpanzees, and so we complemented this work, as Jim said when he was introducing me, uh, with a whole uh, series of behavioural experiments. I'm just going to illustrate that with one or two. What we do here is we take a captive group of chimpanzees and we take just one chimpanzee out for a while. We present it with an artificial task modelled on the ones from the wild. So here what we have is a box where you can push this thing here, you can open up a hole here, put in your stick and stab these bits of food here and pull them out. But then we go to another group, we take a chimpanzee out for a while and we show it same task but a different way to do it. Here you put in a different kind of tool through this this hatch here, push the food out through the tunnel and it drops down. Here's another couple of alternatives, the same task but done in very different ways. And at this particular study site we were able to exploit the fact that we have three groups here who can each see the others and three who can each see the others but they can't see this lot. And so what we were able to do was set up the task here, and our expert here, with with about 10, 11, 12 chimpanzees in the group. If the behaviour then spread to half the group, we moved it here, so these guys could watch through a big window here and see that, and then finally it it would move here, then onto here, and finally onto here, so we see what these have learned from them, and in turn what they had learned from them. So here we have just colour-coded a graph showing the first model in the first group, one over here doing it one way, one over here doing it the other way. What happened in the group? Did it spread? Well, the answer is yes, it did, rather nicely, except that you can see there's one black sheep, as it were, one chimpanzee, who, having seen all this method, has actually come up with the method of the other group, quite inventive, and, so, and that's the poking thing, so maybe that's just the chimpy thing to do, and if we, follow, if, we, if we run the graph for the whole three groups, we'll find that that purple just kind of takes over, they all end up poking. Well, no. In fact, there's a remarkable stability, even to the extent that by the final group that they've cleaned up, they're only doing what that first model was trained to do and what, indeed, most of the chimps all the way along did. And same here. So we're showing here that these chimpanzees can sustain these traditions as they go from group to group to group um, and get the same story with this task here. I'll say a bit more about this in our more extensive closed session tomorrow. Okay, here's another representation of that same thing, because the point I want to make here is uh, we've got kind of like a culture, I would say, made up of these three groups, where the behaviour passed from one to the other, uh, for each of these two tasks, and you can see they're colour-coded here, showing the way that those guys did it, and these are colour-coded here, showing the two different, uh, the, the, the different ways of doing those two tasks, and that's now how we might define a culture here, a culture made up of two different uh, traditions. And here's results from two other uh, <coughs> groups, two other communities at a different place, the Yerk, the Yerk is Centre, each again made up of multiple traditions, and you can just see the colour coding there. I don't have time to explain all that. But the point is that what we've done there is experimentally test, in a way, what we've been inferring as happening in Africa, the notion that in these different communities you have different cultures defined by multiple Traditions, And that's the way, the way I'm distinguishing here between traditions and culture, which you've, you've heard defined in various different ways this afternoon. If you think about the human case, what would distinguish really, if you think about, say, the Scottish culture and, and the culture of, of California? Well, 
what you'd come up with is a whole sort of series initially of different behaviours that are done in different ways, different traditions uh, at, at the sites. Okay, well, that raises the question, well, how has this happened? And we've done a lot of research, a number of experiments on how the transmission uh, takes place. I'm just going to just give you one little video clip to, to give you a flavour of, I think, what, what's important here. This was from a study we did with East African chimpanzees, who you remember don't nutcrack naturally or in, in the wild, but we showed here that they could learn it. So it's certainly not just a, a genetic uh, difference between them. So we could take a chimpanzee like this, who already knows how to nutcrack, and a youngster here <coughs> who doesn't, and then see if they learned. Well, they, they did learn. But what I want to show you here is just this video clip. And <coughs> my introduction to this is uh, just an anecdote about uh, my father-in-law. I used to love watching boxing on the television, and you could see when he was watching, he was doing all this kind of thing. He was, he was um, identifying with that boxer and kind of just shadowing what, what the boxer did. Well, uh, watch the little chimpanzee here on the left. The, right, the one on the right is going to do the nutcracking. Okay, I, th I think that kind of says it all. Um, the way in which we do uh, as we identify with another individual and so readily step into their shoes and sort of have some appreciation of what it would be bodily to be in their shoes and doing what they're doing, that is kind of at the heart of imitation. It was mentioned earlier on, in fact, in our first talk, there's quite a lot of controversy about whether chimpanzees really do imitate, um, whether it's only humans, children, who really do that and they have a different way of, of copying behaviour. I think to some extent that's true, but this, I think, is quite important um, little illustration of the nature of a mind that is, is inherently really quite cultural in that particular respect. But that's all I'm going to do uh, to say about that topic about transmission, because I just want to step back now, because I've been talking about chimpanzees so much, and give a bit of a kind of bigger overview. I think what I've been talking about can be seen as kind of rather towards the top of what I'm calling here a culture pyramid. This is from a paper by myself and Carol Vine Scheich, which uh, eventuates in cumulative culture. But the start, the base of the pyramid is social information transfer, which I think is very widely spread in the animal kingdom. So here's a little wolf cub uh, sniffing the, the smell from its mother's mouth. From that it gets some cues about what are the good things to eat. That happens in many species. And this is found in very, various birds, fish, <coughs> and even invertebrates like bees here, who will actually learn by observation that you know, these are the flowers to go to today. And in fact, that information tends to be rather transient. So those are the flowers today, but what about tomorrow? It's only then a subset of all that massive social information transfer that goes on in the animal kingdom eventuates in what we call traditions. We've heard traditions defined in various ways. Today, there's, there's, there's one. And so that's illustrated by things like um, the dialects of, of birds, Another example is from fish and birds. Uh, but in many of those cases, there's only one tradition being demonstrated. So then we move on to culture, as I defined it here, defined by multiple traditions. And of course, I've been talking today about the example of chimpanzees like that. But I think we've heard other examples from, say, the capuchin monkeys and from cetaceans for that uh, kind of level of, of complexity of culture. But they're only in a subset of cultures in that sense do we get cumulative culture really crucial to ourselves. I mean, look at what's all around us, all our languages, 
That's our cumulative culture for which there's very little evidence and would say none at all in, in other species. And it's not just language, of course, it's our material culture. Here's the evolution. This is our best example, really, the evolution of the hammer. Two and a half million years of the evolution of the hammer, step by step, each one building on what went before. So culture evolves is, is my conclusion. But in those two steps, remember, distinguishing between the evolution of the capacity for culture, which I think we can trace stepwise in an evolutionary way across the animal kingdom, and then the evolution of culture itself, as it were, cultural things, which we see so clearly illustrated in our own species. On that point, I'll finish, and I apologise again for not talking so much about children. I made some sort of uh, oblique references to them, but I thought you might like to know more about chimpanzees, which perhaps some of you know less about than children. Okay. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.